0: This is Digital Health Today, episode three.
1: Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Now, here is your host, Dan Kendall.
0: Hello, Dan Kendall here. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Health Today podcast. This is the third episode, and I'm really grateful to you for tuning in and providing your time and input to what we're working to build here. I am dedicated to making this podcast your most informative and inspiring resource for digital health information, and I have to say the response so far has been terrific. I couldn't be more grateful for your encouragement and support, and I can tell you that there is a lot in store over the coming weeks, and I'm really excited about it. I have some great guests lined up, and I'll be attending some world class events like the Health 2.0 event in Barcelona in May. And those are opportunities where I can bring you more insights and knowledge from leaders around the globe. We will also have some outstanding partnerships in store with organizations that really want to engage with the digital health community. So stay tuned for some key announcements. We're just three episodes in, and I can tell you that I also really appreciate your patience and grace as I develop this podcast from scratch. There have certainly been a few hiccups along the way, but I'm happy to tell you that all mistakes, ums, ahs, and technical issues are free of charge for the first few episodes. And after that, You're going to need to pay me for them. All kidding aside, just a few things to mention before we jump into the podcast. Have you joined our mailing list yet? Please take a minute to subscribe for updates, offers, and valuable resources provided by our guests, partners, and other members of the digital health community. When you subscribe this month, April 2016, you'll also be entered to win a set of six top books on innovation, healthcare, and entrepreneurship. You can see all the titles there on the website when you click to subscribe to the newsletter. Also, if you enjoy this free podcast, please show your support by clicking subscribe in iTunes or in Stitcher, where you can also leave a rating and a review. If you need some help on how to do that, we put together a support page on the digitalhealthtoday.com website. And after you've left a review, I would love to send you a small thank you gift by mail to recognize your support for the show. You can find a link on the support page for details on how to receive your free gift. And finally, do you have a solution, project, event, or program that would be of interest to our audience, or maybe you know of someone who does? Either way, please take a minute to let me know. Fill out the form on the contact page or click on the refer a guest button and a member of our team will be in touch. You can also email me directly at host at DigitalHealthToday.com. Now, let's start the show. Today, I'm pleased to bring you a very talented and experienced innovator and entrepreneur, Stuart Carton of Carton Design. Stuart founded this product innovation consultancy in 1984 to help companies use creativity strategically to establish market leadership. Today, his firm is one of the nation's premier product innovation firms, and he leads a staff of 30 design researchers and strategists, industrial designers, and mechanical engineers. What I really think is interesting is that Stewart continually brings the very latest ideas and innovations to the solutions that he helps develop for healthcare. And that's because he works across industries and he partners with leading medical device companies, as well as consumer electronics and consumer product manufacturers to create extraordinary experiences between people and products. And he'll talk about the impact of rising consumer expectations on the development of healthcare solutions. Stuart and I spoke while he was in his office in Marina del Rey, California, and he shared insights into the development of connected homes and gives us a peek into salutogenesis. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, neither did I, and he explains it on this podcast. As a special resource for our listeners, Stuart has put together a guide on strategic front end innovation, and you can pick that up by visiting our website at digitalhealthtoday.com three. All the information will be there in the show notes. So without further ado, let's dive into the discussion with entrepreneur, innovator, designer, and president of Carton Design, Stuart Carton. Stuart, thanks very much for joining us on the program. My pleasure, Dan. Stuart, I've already given the listeners a little bit of insight into your background and introduction to yourself there at Carton Design. Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe give us a little insight into your personal life?
1: Sure. No problem. So, uh, you know, I'm just one of those people that was very fortunate to get exposed to something that I was really passionate about when I was young, which was building and making and creating things and, uh, able to find an occupation and a profession where I could actually deploy those skills. And so, um, you know, I, I studied industrial design, went to Rhode Island school of design, came out to California pretty much right after I graduated Worked for about eight years. And my last few jobs were in the medical industry. So that's where I got exposed to designing uh healthcare products. And then, um, Started the business in 1984, and it's 32 years later, and fortunately, happily married, 27 years next week, and I have a 25-year-old daughter who's living the millennial dream in New York City, working for a startup, managing their social media, so life is good, Dan.
0: Excellent, Stuart. That's really great. Congratulations on the upcoming anniversary, 27 years is a long time. I'm really interested in your background. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've been involved with and, and how you've seen technology evolve in those in those years.
1: You know, at one extreme, the the thing that's been really beneficial is when I first started the business. The first task I had was to actually educate people on the value of industrial design. First of all, first of all, I had to explain to them what industrial design was, then I had to explain the value, and then if we were lucky, we were able to get some kind of engagement and move forward. The good thing is that over the course of the 32 years, and I'd probably say maybe 15 years ago or so, thankfully, we had representatives of our field on the cover of key magazines, Business Week, Time, and the business world at large became aware of what the power of design is, and then other firms started, you you know, popping up and growing and becoming uh, more prevalent. So, at a very high level, it's been uh, it's been a great ride because we have this awareness in the business community and that they understand the value. And then, in terms of the kinds of projects that we've been doing, we always did a lot of healthcare med tech product projects, but it wasn't until about five years ago. And it was, you know, kind of connected to the Affordable Care Act that where we really saw this connection between the work that we were doing in the consumer space where we were designing products that, you know, you got to stand out on a shelf and people have to love them and buy them and evangelize them that that actually had relevance and uh, correlation to now with the work that we were doing in the healthcare space using those experiences and those skills and looking at the technologies that as they were evolving, we were able to kind of work together with creating solutions that really were more patient focused and took into account all of the people in the ecosystem, you know, whether it be the patients, the clinicians, the docs. So that's been this kind of convergence that's happened, fort- and very fortunately for us.
0: How do you describe industrial design to the people you're working with?
1: Well, yeah, this is tricky because industrial design has evolved itself, and part of what's happened is is that in an effort to really know what to design define the product and the experience that we were gonna create as industrial designers the the field of design research started to grow and that happened you know probably fifteen twenty years ago and we were we were always practicing in that way but it wasn't until about 10 or 12 years ago that we formalized it within the company and then hired people to actually do that work people with cognitive science backgrounds sociology backgrounds and they Their work was in the service of the designers, getting them the empathetic experiences and helping them go out and talk to the people in the ecosystem. And also, obviously, it served the benefit. It benefited our clients as well. So, you know, I don't even think about what we, at one extreme, yes, we do industrial design and that's where our roots are, but now we're doing digital experience as well. So we have, we have user experience designers. We have the design researchers. We have industrial designers and then we have mechanical engineers. And it really takes this kind of group, multidisciplinary group to really provide You know, what we talk about is great experiences for, for the people who are using the products or services that we create.
0: I have been involved in product development for most of my career and software was always something that I was involved with, but it was always just, it was just a part of the hardware design, frankly. And now software development and user experience and user interface design is so much of the product itself that actually a great product if it doesn't have a wonderful software experience the products just gonna get lost and not get traction
1: I totally agree with that. So our roots with software were in what we would call embedded software, where we were creating products or instruments that had some sort of a user interface. And slowly, just like the smartphones that we use, you know, it got stripped back to the actual digital component being the actual experience versus the knobs, the buttons and the dials, which we still, we call the PUI, the physical user interface, which there still needs to be those components. But you're, as you're designing a product, you're trying to tease out the hierarchy of the the interface to know which ones, which controls controls or interfaces need to be physical which is versus those that are digital if you track along in the consumer world like i spoke, just mentioned with smartphones you know this is the world that we're training people in you know how to actually make their way through digital experiences and enjoy and hopefully make them happy through with those digital experiences so what's happened for us is As technology evolved, and most recently with connectivity, and you see devices that collect data, and how that data gets brought back to people, which needs to be converted to information for, depending who they are in the ecosystem, you know, there's that's really where our work is crossed over from not just doing hardware, but doing the actual digital experiences, whether it be apps, web portals, those sorts of things, to support the products.
0: Tell us about some of the projects you've been involved with, maybe one or two real highlights where you really feel like you were able to engage heavily in the product and the user experience and and really perhaps get some real great recognition for the work you produced.
1: There's a few, and I'll I'll keep them focused on the healthcare medical side. And one of them was more of a a conceptual effort, and it was done in conjunction with Dr. Dr. Leslie Saxon at the Center for Body Computing, which where we're a founding member. She was brought an assignment by Boston Scientific, another member of the Center for Body Computing where they were asked, she asked Leslie or uh, Dr. Saxon if we were to liberate data that was coming off of people's implanted and carni- cardiac defibrillators, what would that do for people? Because they've been collecting and warehousing this data forever. And we went in and we did research. We talked to people who had ICDs. We talked to Dr. Saxon to understand what her needs were. And we actually talked to the caregivers, uh, the people who were, you know, family members or actually caregivers for the people, the patients themselves. And what we were able to do is basically create an app that allowed people to have this interactivity with with their information and bring it to them in a really unique way. And because the data was so rich, we were able to apply algorithms that brought a sense of magic to it. So we would say things to them like, I see you haven't been sleeping well. Well, you know, the the ICD is literally like a supercomputer in your chest, you know, like a Fitbit on steroids. And so we were able to tease out these algorithms, get people engaged through a little bit of magic, and then we used another component called progressive disclosure, where If the person wanted more information, it was available, but we asked them first versus, you know, just putting up six tabs of information that would overwhelm them. So that that project I'm very proud of. And it was, you know, the way we conducted it. And it's now hopefully making its way through the halls of Boston Scientific. The other project that we're in the middle of right now, which I'm really excited about, is a neuromodulation project. It's a company called Exonics Modulation Systems, and basically they took a very small neurostimulator and licensed it from the Al Mann Foundation, asked us to help them where the best indications were to apply that technology, and we did the research and realized that overactive bladder and fecal incontinence is really an underserved market specifically with neurostimulation, but with great success with the companies that are doing it. And so uh, we helped craft the entire user experience and that involves how the patient controls the implant. It also is the uh, how you charge the implant and it's making its way through to clinical trials in Europe and looks like it's going to be a real success for the company and potentially a, an acquisition target for some of the bigger medical companies.
0: On that first example you gave, you used the words progressive Disclosure. I've seen that interface is a beautiful interface and I think that that's one of the great outcomes from having smaller screens is that we have to be far more selective about the information we present. To users, when we have a 12 or 17 or 21 inch monitor, we tend to want to put a lot of information there. But when we have a 4, 5, 6, 11 inch monitor or or tablet or smartphone, we need to be far more conservative about what we're sharing with them. And also to make sure that we're sharing the right information at the right point in the patient's journey. Is that something that, that you guys took into account as you thought about that? Not only whether they want to know it, but whether they're in the right stage of their care pathway to necessarily take that information in and be able to make good use of it.
1: That's right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's critical. And that's a lot of the work that we're doing with our design research team is to really understand patient journeys. And we're typically hired you know, by companies that have specific products, whether it be for acute pain, or whether it be they're having a triple A stent, or depending on what it is, but really looking at it through the lens of the patient and looking at it in a way that speaks to them on some emotional level, and also does exactly what you alluded to, which is bring them the right information at the right time when they want it. So I think that's a definitely a big focus for us. And I, it's funny with when we go out and we share some of the visuals, the maps, the things that we do to help illustrate this journey. You'd be surprised how many people haven't even thought about it or even, you know, realize that this is a, a dimension of how they can drive innovation.
0: It's shocking how little thought sometimes is given to design in relation to healthcare products. And I think. Design has always been a verb and now used more as a noun as, you know, we need, we need to have good design product or experience. Whereas we would use design as a means to an end, and you may have seen it more prevalent in other sectors before. It seems to have been adopted within healthcare. Is that
1: true? Oh, totally true. And it goes back to my comment I made earlier about designing consumer products and the challenges you have there, which is you you need to make something that is going to stand out. You know, typically you really need to differentiate something, whether it be fun- not just functionality but from an aesthetic and appearance. You know, people have choice, right? So they you want them to choose your your headphones or your whatever consumer electronics you're working on so you know you have to address use design to create those reactions and typically what we saw in the medical field until recently was that, you know, we just need to make it work. You know, if it's functional, that's fine. Nobody has to pick and choose it off of a shelf and it really doesn't matter how it looks. And let's just make sure that it has good usability. And so there's two dimensions that are, that are changing that in the healthcare medical space. One is. The world at large, thankfully, has has a much higher level sensitivity to design because of companies like Apple and because of car companies like Tesla, BMW, all the good examples of really nice car design. People know what good design is. They have a sense of it. They know what it sounds like. They know how it feels. And that expectation is becoming going across their their life experience so just because you're a nurse doesn't mean you know you don't know what good design is but if you're experiencing it in your consumer personal life and when you go to work and all of a sudden you know like you walk up and this object is gorgeous and you know exactly how to work it and use it and it's responsive to you you know people get that and it really is Uh, so companies who are making what traditionally they never really cared about design are starting to have to and realize the power in it then you have this other shift in healthcare where products are being pushed into the hands of patients so So large companies like Boston Scientific, Medtronic, St. Jude, They never really, unless it was diabetic, which has always been sort of patient-facing, they never really had to think about what it meant for a patient or the general user to be engaged with their product because, you know, they were selling to docs, hospitals, and, you know, pretty much the purchasing department within the hospital. Now, all of a sudden, they have to worry about engagement and whether people like it and whether they want to use it and how do we, what's this thing called in motion? I mean, we never had to deal with this. All of our good work and our focus is, you know, helping them understand how to create those better experiences and get people to react to their product, and ultimately consumerism of healthcare will come full full around in a full way where you know consumers are going to have choice and they're going to be wanting the stuff that looks the best, works the best, easiest to use, you know, that just the way they do in their personal lives.
0: Yeah, and I think a, a lot of that is because when patients used to go into the healthcare environment in the past, there was probably better technology in the hospital than there was in their home, but now that patients have far better technology and experiences and mobile phones and access to their banks and access to their loved ones and access to their other pieces of information. They can get car loans and mortgages and select the interior of their car through their phones. And they go into the hospital and it seems like you're you're being thrown back and being told to use a television that doesn't have a remote control or...
1: Yeah, I heard somebody say something the other day. They said, you know, 10 years ago, everybody was like, digital banking. You know, one day we'll all be doing digital banking. Well, the word digital isn't even there anymore. This is just banking. This is how it's done now, right? You Take a photo of your check and deposit it, and there you go. And they were making that analogy to what's going to happen with healthcare, you know, that eventually it won't be all about digital health. It'll be just how healthcare is done. And I, I really related to that because the way I currently, the way I describe the current situation, I call it the wild, wild west. You know, everybody's trying everything and there's no one company, there's no one app, there's no one anything. I've, I've often drew, drew the analogy that like it's pre-smartphone. You know, you had a camera, you had a palm, you know, you had a phone, you, know, you had five, six devices to get your job done. And now there's just this thing called a smartphone where it's all unified. Eventually we will get all unified. And I believe the home is where that's going to happen because that's where you actually have the most impact to affect people's health care and, and their um, well-being.
0: You mentioned the home, and my grandparents have passed now, but in their later years, they did not want to leave their home, either to go out and do errands or to go in and, and receive health care, and often you would think that process of going to a doctor's appointment or to a visit for a lab test, they actually would risk their health more for a slip and fall injury or, or some other injury that might occur to them because they're doing something that's outside of their normal pattern. I know you just hosted a panel at the South by Southwest Conference a few weeks ago. What sort of work are you doing in the patient home and the patient and the home environment?
1: Well, first of all, I'll just correct you there. We wouldn't call it the patient home. We just call it the home. And this is where people are living and doing their lives. Yeah, we've been working with a number of companies that are trying to actually identify the future and how we're going to bring healthcare into the home and into what spaces, the bathrooms, the kitchens, and even the, the living room. And my the panel, which was called Home Sweet Home, the health hub, of the future. I had Dr. David Rue, chief medical officer for Samsung. I had Dr. Scott Kaiser, who's a geriatrician. And the person I thought brought the most interesting perspective was a woman named Angela Mazzi. She's an architect that's developing spaces focused on well-being. And she introduced me to this term called salutogenesis, which is this book that was written. And it's this practice about creating spaces that are focused on health, not sickness. And so, you know, there was just some great discussion about where things are going and what's happening. And, you know, what, what I believe is going to happen is it's sort of like what I just spoke about with the, with the smartphone, you know, where eventually architects, interior architects and interior designers are going to have a large role in what it means to actually provide and create these new solutions for the future. Right now, when you, when you talk about the home, what you alluded to was this aging in place issue. Honey, I, you know, I'm in the middle of it. My in-laws are living in a home and he fell. And as a result, he needs additional care. And then my mother-in-law fell and now it's time to move them. So we got, you know, we had to do all the research to understand what's the difference between assisted living and independent living. But that whole aging in place has been a a topic, you know, the term sandwich generation. So, you know, there's this whole sandwich generation where you're watching over your kids and now you're watching over your parents as well that we're living in where we have to deal with all these issues like you, you alluded to with your family. Very, you know, the experience that I've had, my wife and I are like looking around at everything we went and researched for them and we're like we don't want to end up here and if we did This isn't the kind of place we want to be at. So I do think with the baby boom and the silver tsunami coming, there's going to be a real shift in architecture and in what it means for us to live out our lives. Whether it's homes that morph that facilitate that living in place, or whether the kinds of places we go to, whether they're more communal, whether they have you know shared services for food prep and for healthcare, but you're still in your own little independent bungalows or cottages. I mean, there's so much to you know that's going on there, and I think that has potential.
0: You mentioned the sandwich generation, looking after your aging parents and the children you're raising the, yourselves, I believe you also done a little bit of work or research into how people can not just try to keep their loved ones aging in place or in their homes, but also tools and, and ways that we can use technology to help us in our parenting and, and just the conduct of our home.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, the way that we've been thinking about it is, is that you think about well-being and healthcare as affecting all life stages. So right now, as, as we just spoke about, you know, big focus on the aging and big focus on when people, you know, are in that uh, demographic where they're have comorbidities or they're, you know, they're, they're failing because of aging. But the reality is, is if you think about a future where sensors and technology is built into the fabric of our homes, you can help kids with acne. You can help babies with potty training. You can help people with, you know, the number one apps that are sold off of the app store have to do with pregnancy and menstruation. So, you know, think about if there's things in your home that are helping you figure out when you can get pregnant or avoid getting pregnant and they're built into the fabric of the home. This this to me is really where the future is heading and will become invisible in our lives. You know, that's the problem is we, nobody sits around thinking about health. You know, we're all, most some people have the consciousness that I shouldn't eat donuts, you know, eat healthier things and all that. But most of the time, this is not a, a hot topic for people. People want to do things they like. They want to listen to music. They want to play sports. They want to go out, socialize. So if we can make it so that these things are built into the fabric of our of our lives, literally, structurally and mentally, that they become invisible and they only they bring you the information and the data and the things that you need when it like we talked about earlier, when in when you actually need them.
0: You've mentioned a few large companies that you've worked with. I know you've worked with some smaller businesses as well that have needed your help designing products. When do companies normally engage with you? At what stage in their development do they normally come and knock on your door?
1: Well, I'd say, you know, the, you have uh, the enlightened companies and then the companies that maybe by accident or stumbled into an engagement with uh, with somebody like us. So, you know, the, the rule of thumb in general is the earlier, the better, because we can help shape and drive what that what your product can look like what the experience around that product can be and affected in a much bigger, broader way. You know, if somebody has a technology, you know, the best case scenario is somebody's got a technology, they've proven that that technology is actually efficient, works, whether they've been through clinical trials or, or done bench testing or whatever it may be. They come to us and say, you know, here's this technology we have, it's proven out. But what we haven't done is figured out how it will, where it should be placed and what's the experience in the marketplace. So that when we do bring it to market, there'll be traction and it'll be, you know, minimal friction to have it adopted and put into to use you know that said we've had companies come to us who are you know they're they're they've got everything locked down and now they're just asking us to kind of pretty it up that's kind of a that's a horrible situation of course we help and we do that we're we're not as effective if we're not actually engaged in a in an earlier stage in the process
0: absolutely so many decisions get made along the way if you can have that excellent design input early, you can take that into account as you're making those other decisions. And I like the term you use, the enlightened. So we certainly do need to make sure that everyone out there working in the healthcare and wellness industries are very enlightened in their approach to design.
1: I have a a, a serial client. He he prefers to be called my patron. His name's Ray Cohen. And we've worked with him over the last 25 years. When he's putting a company together, And he's developing a product, you know, we're, we're the first to get the call and we're helping him in some cases name the company, do the visuals for the logo and, and then even help him create the decks and the tools to go raise money. And then of course, then designing and executing the product all with, you know, an eye to design and what it means to stand out against whoever else he's competing against. And also to create a nice, bright, shiny object for those people he's looking to acquire the company.
0: Can you give us an example of a project that you got involved with that this let's, let's call it run by one of the unenlightened groups maybe it was actually frankly a train wreck before you guys got involved and that you guys tried to to get put back on the right path can you sort of take us through <laughs> the steps That you follow? Actually, I'll open it up for either group, whether it was an enlightened project, enlightened client, or one that you got involved a little bit later in the game. Can you take us through some of the steps, how you approach a design engagement with a client?
1: So, one project in particular was a company called DentalView, and they had pretty much built out and finished the product itself. And what nobody ever did was actually go out and talk to dentists or, or hygienists who were target users for this product. And so they went to market with it and got huge pushback. And a lot of it revolved around a couple of simple things, simple things that if they had gone out and actually talked to their target market and looked at the context of use in the environment, they might have saved themselves a few dollars. So for example, dentists traditionally, when they're doing their work, they're really only focused and looking in one place, and that's in your mouth. And this technology, which put a fiber optic camera on the end of a tool that allowed you to strip grape below the gum line so you could see the the periodontal. Calcification required that they look at a monitor while they're actually doing the scraping, and the current the incarnation that they showed up with, you couldn't get that vid- that monitor into the field of use of the dentist so that he could actually kind of go back and forth, think like heads-up display, you know, between working in your mouth and actually looking at the screen to see what he had, and so that was that was one issue that we were able to solve by bringing the display very close and literally like you know just where he could look up and see the display while he was manipulating and scraping within the mouth. The other thing that we found out more from a high-level business perspective is that the device was really expensive. And a normal dentist with maybe three to four operatories would never, never buy more than one of these because of the, the, the cost. So as a result, what they had was this big, huge machine that took two people to wheel it around and get it into each of the operatories. And there wasn't even space in some of the operatories that we we did research. So we slimmed it up and we made it much more portable and we communicated portability through the overall look and feel of it. And, you know, they went back out to market. And, of course, you know, it was a much different story with now a product that dentists literally welcomed and, and were excited about using.
0: the In the lean startup methodology, we'd call that the product market fit. And you just mentioned that that company – Designed that in house and then took it out to to show the clients, and I imagine they'd invested a significant amount of resources at that stage before they went out and engaged with customers. And really, I think that's a lesson for a lot of businesses. And then we talk about it, I think, a lot more now. I'm not sure how long ago that example occurred, but it seems to be that people are much more aware now that they they don't need to protect their idea from the outset; they need to be able to talk to. Uh, customers and the market about it so they can make sure that before they use their own money, their friend's money, their family's money, or go out and try to raise money, that they actually have a product that's going to fit what the market needs.
1: I hear what you're saying, and we're definitely seeing a shift more towards people doing that and doing it in a lean way. I mean, even you know, startups come to us and they don't have the kind of budgets that we require to go out and do that in a more formal way. I tell them, do it guerrilla style. Just go out, make a phone call, go visit. Make sure you understand where this is going to live and who's going to use it.
0: Can you take us through some of the steps that you use when you get engaged in a new project?
1: Sure. So our standard process is, and again, this is in kind of the most optimistic way. If somebody calls us early and we can actually truly affect things, we're gonna we're gonna do a phase of uh, what we call design research, and within that. We usually do some foundational research. So that's, you know, using the web and using whatever tools we can to become level set with our client in terms of, you know, the competitors, who's out there. How does the product work? Usually we'll get trained on it. We'll go through some immersion so that we have that base knowledge as, as much as we can absorb from the client. In some cases, they may have done some research. They'll slide that across the table to us and we'll ingest it and get to that point. And then through that process, we identify really who the, the ecosystem. We've been talking a lot about it as the voice of the ecosystem and we, we use that term because most business people say voice of the customer VOC research but it's never really any one person because you know it could be the separate person who's using it versus buying it versus programming it so we we use that foundational research to really understand what the total ecosystem is and how far and how deep we want to go out and actually do the design research meaning the, the primary research and we do that in many different ways we do ethnography we do contextual inquiry we'll do you know just straight up off-site visits we'll get people in here we'll sometimes bring equipment into the office and have them go through things with us off-site because it's challenging sometimes to get into certain environments in the hospital. And then we're using that, by the way, we're highly collaborative, so our process is really almost require that the project team from our client is riding shotgun with us through all of this. Because in the end, and we've been very successful at this, when when that team goes back and they actually are talking to the rest of the management or even the other teams at their office, they they need to stand up and talk about the experience and talk about the product and what we learned, and that's the best case scenario for us. So we're really about not just being hired as consultants to go off and then come back with magic solutions. We're actually training our clients how to fish, quote unquote fish, as we go through this. So we go through that design research and then we go through a bit of analysis. And this is really where it is helpful to have the client there because there's just a, a certain amount of tribal knowledge that we can't come up to speed on that they have embedded in their organization. So we go through the analysis to really uncover where their unmet needs are, where there's opportunities. And those opportunities could be product focused, they could be digital focused, they could be marketing communication focused, they could be service based. So we there's a very big payoff from this upfront phase that we do that can really affect multiple parts of the organization. But typically our way of actioning on it is through product and through digital. So we go through that process and then there's two types of products, projects rather. One would be we're straight up trying to create new and different and we're trying to drive innovation. The other is more of an what I would call standard product design where we're creating either an next gen or an evolutionary product for the client. So if it's okay with you, I'll just quickly take you through both pathways. So let's use the traditional product development. We'll still require or ask that we go out and do design research. We still want to talk to, we do in, internal stakeholder interviews. We'll try to get the view of the CEO, the chief marketing officer, all the people internally We'll use that information to help guide product specifications and we'll conceptualize what the product would look like. So it moves from design research into design development. Where we're actually developing concepts. And looking at different solutions, in some cases we'll create, the, take those and go back, go out into the marketplace and maybe get some feedback. We'll be building mockups and prototypes to get a sense of it in 3D. And then once a the direction is frozen, we move into this typically the second phase, which is design development and engineering, where we're starting to look at the construction strategy, how it's built, what's involved, what's the user interface, how deep is the user interface, and we're taking it sufficiently to a level to create a prototype, which is the phase three. A works like, looks like prototype. So something we could take out and actually, again, test and put in front of people. The fourth phase after we build that prototype is to do all the final engineering and modifications. And we're working very closely with the client because they typically own the internals and we're giving, they're giving us guidance of, of you know, keep out areas, what we can do, can't do with the internals, relationships. And then, you know, the way I describe it is they're, they're designing it from the inside out and we're designing it from the outside in. And we need to, you know, reconcile and calibrate that. Phase five is to go back out and build engineering prototypes, really what I call an insurance policy before we go to the next phase, which is to release it and, and go to tooling and production. And then we stay involved in our phase seven to actually monitor that to make sure the design integrity is upheld. So that's your standard product development process. But the innovation side of it is a little different. We're trying to create some new and different products or services for our client and we take a very different approach. So again, usually we're starting with some sort of right to win, whether it be technology or they have an access to a channel. And we are going out and doing that similar work for the design research, but we're doing it a little broader. We're still looking at all the different stakeholders and we're trying to understand maybe workflow or process and where we can insert this new Idea or technology or product, and so the first step is design research. Then the second step is ideation, and the way I describe that is we want to go wide and you know from mile to wild. We're trying to cover the walls. No, no judgment on whether it can be made today or tomorrow, or whether the technology is available now or whenever. And then. W- as a team, and I, as I t- spoke about earlier, we're working very collaboratively with our clients at this point. We are trying to eventually narrow down to a set of ideas. You know, Maybe we started out with 70 to 100 different things that we generated through workshops and through our own efforts here at Carton Design, but we're trying to get it down to a, a manageable group, but without actually killing off anything that, that has the seed of a good idea. So for rough numbers, let's say we get it down to 10 to 15 different ideas. And then what we do is we create low-fidelity prototypes prototypes of those ideas, things that we could generate quickly, either rough mock-ups. They don't need to be, you know, photo level appearance type prototypes. They could be storyboards, anything that you can communicate to a person what this product is and what it delivers for you. And then we go back out into the field to actual users and we get their input. And we do that through an iterative process that we call fail forward fast, where we're presenting these ideas. And then, you know, the feedback can come in either ends of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum is most people think it's a horrible idea and would have no interest in it. So it's killed. The other end of the spectrum would be, I love it. When can I have it? And then the middle ground, usually like, you know, I like that, but if it was a little smaller or if you did this or you did that. So we come back and we actually modify the designs or the ideas based on that input and we quickly go back out again and we do that if we can three times. And usually that 10 to 15 comes down to five, six, eight ideas that are sort of pre-market qualitative way, pre-market validated, right? Where you know that people have interest if we were to make this, that they would be interested in using it and having it. And that's what starts this typical stage gate process, which then falls back to the process I I spoke about earlier, where you actually now are digging in and figuring out how to make it and manufacture it and design it.
0: Great. That's a really uh, detailed process. I like the fail forward fast terminology that you use because I've often expressed that when people are trying to innovate and accelerate their business, it's really about accelerating failure because you want to find all these things that that don't work so that you don't spend a lot of money in those areas and that you can hopefully then uh, identify the key things that are really going to make the product to market or design move in your direction. Exactly. Thanks for taking us through the steps in terms of how you approach new projects. I understand you've put together a PDF that our listeners can download that will take them through some similar things that they may be able to apply in their own business.
1: Yes. I have that, and uh, I think it would be pretty helpful to those people who are in the middle of the process. Excellent. Great. So everyone
0: who's listening can go to the website, digitalhealthtoday.com slash three, and we'll have that PDF there available for download. So thanks, Stuart, for preparing that. My pleasure. Stuart, I just wanted to go through and ask you a few lightning round questions. sure all right so first of all Stuart tell me why you chose to take on projects in health and wellness
1: well you know the real the it's really simple it's about creating things that make a difference for people and can help them live better happier lives And, and I found that not only was it fulfilling for me personally but what I found is it's invigorating for my team and I have a lot of young members on their team and they're really interested in doing things that do good in the world
0: What's the best advice you've ever received? It could be a quote, saying, lyric, or something that inspires you. So
1: just a little bit of context around it. So it was actually my first job in the corporate world. I was working for Baxter. I had done my first project, and I was going in front of, you know, the pretty major people in management to present it. And my boss at the time, who came out of Mattel Toys to over into the medical industry, very seasoned guy, you know, right before, and I was, you know, Mr. Young, eager beaver, couldn't wait to get in there and really do it. And he pulled me aside, like literally before we walked in the room and he said to me, he goes, "Um, I got one tip for you. I go, what's that? He goes, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut.
0: (laughs) Okay, good advice. And did that work out for you? It,
1: It has worked out in many, many scenarios for me. If you could recommend one book, what would it be, and why? Uh, the book that I love the most right now is called *The Power of Habit* by Charles Duhigg. He really captures human behavior in a very simple way, and he talks about, you know, what it means, how people are ing- get habits ingrained. He talks about it at different scales. He talks about something that I I really appreciate, which is called a keystone habit. And he's not only informed and inf- influenced me in my personal life, but as well across the work that we do here at Carton Design.
0: What technology resource? tool or app do you highly recommend?
1: Well, the app that I really love and also was a benefit to me personally is an app called Lose It. I think its simplicity mm-hmm. is what could create those keystone habits for those people who are trying to uh, live a healthier life and maybe lose some weight. Uh, it was really effective for me and it was I loved it because it was just like real simple. Just set your calorie goal and then just log and then everything else sort of falls out from that.
0: We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And finally, in appreciation of your participation in this podcast, we're going to make a donation to a charity of your choice. Which charity have you chosen and why?
1: Um, I love Donors Choose, which is the website where you can go in and actually pick and choose from teachers and schools who are asking for equipment or, 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 you know, different services. And there's one right now called Make Your Mark with Markers that I really like. And if you would donate to that, it would make me really happy. Stuart,
0: why don't you give the listeners a few ways to get in touch with you, to follow you and possibly engage with you in the future?
1: Our webpage is kartondesign.com, K-A-R-T-E-N, design.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stuart Carton. And if you want to reach out to me personally, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at kartondesign.com.
0: Excellent. Thanks very much for being with us today, Stuart. My pleasure, Dan. And there you go. I always enjoy speaking with Stuart and I always get some great tips on how I can improve some of the projects I'm working on with my clients. I wish I'd been able to see that session he hosted at the South by Southwest conference last month, where he discussed the home as the health hub of the future. But we did manage to get the slides from that session and those are available on the website. Those slides plus the complete innovation process that Stuart talked about links to some of the projects and companies he mentioned, and even more. All of that is available for download in the show notes. Just go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash three. That's the number three. While you're there, make sure you're always kept up to date on the latest podcast, as well as to hear about upcoming guests and your opportunities to get your questions answered. Take a second to subscribe to our newsletter, and you'll also be entered into our contest this month. Your feedback and comments are important to me, so feel free to get in touch with me on my Twitter handle, healthtechdan, or email me at host at digitalhealthtoday.com. That's the end of our show. Thanks again for joining. I'm Dan Kendall. Until next time, keep on innovating.